that, let's get into Nehemiah chapter 3. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. It's right after Ezra, so if that doesn't help you, start in Genesis and just keep working your way till you get to Nehemiah. It's not a, well, it's bigger than, it's bigger than Ezra, but it's not a, big, not a big book. Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 through 4 and have a lot of fun with some of these names uh, as well. Nehemiah 3, starting with verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the Tower of Hananel, Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also the sons of Hassani uh, built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. I mean, men are like, this is great tools and all bolts, bars, all kinds of good stuff here. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, and made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, and the son of Bana, made repairs. Do you remember all that? All right. <laughs> Lord, one more time. Lord, we pray that your word would increase, your spirit would increase, that we would decrease, and Lord, just come under the work of your spirit by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're with us a couple weeks ago, and again, uh, Dr. Tito was here last week, so you've got to go back two weeks uh, Nehemiah had preached a mini-message. Do you remember? He called the people to say, you see everything. What are you going to do? It wasn't a condemning message, but it was a stirring message. Maybe even with a little fiery passion. Nehemiah, was a, he had a prophet in him. When you, you'll find out just how passionate he is when you get further in the book. But if you go back to verse 17, chapter 2, just look for a real quick, verse 17, chapter 2. This is a portion of his mini-message. Then he said to them, you see the distress we are in. Can you imagine pleading with Americans? You see the distress we are in. How Jerusalem lies in waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us, this is exhortation in the Bible, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach now, he's speaking of a reproach to the people, but a lot of times we're being a reproach to God, right? And just, and just kind of our rebellious or our hard-heartedness. So again, it wasn't a condemning message, but it was with some fiery passion, passion and it wasn't a you-all message, but it was a call to action, a we message of exhortation. And we saw that glorious and resounding response. Pretty much everybody stood up and said, yes. What a blessing and relief to Nehemiah that people heard the voice of God. Uh, he and a small group of men, they were not alone. But God had stirred the hearts of all the people. God wants to stir all the people, not just some of the people. It's always and only God that can stir an awakening and a new work. Just like when parents have a new baby, that's God. He's the one, the giver of life, right? A new baby's a new life. It's a new work. God's the only one that can stir a new work. The people not only resounded with a unified voice of agreement 
and affirmation, but they set their hands to that good work, you'll recall. And if it's God-ordained, you know it's a good work, right? It's a divine work. It's an essential work. The people not only said that they would rise to the occasion, but they began, no doubt, gathering the tools, the supplies, the materials, because this was a massive undertaking. If you're taking notes, you can see the title of today's message, Rising is One. Last two weeks ago, it was ready to rise. Now they're rising. You have to get ready before you can rise. You've got to go lower before you can rise. You've got to repent and put more at the altar before you can rise. Amen. God uses humble servants, but, it, but we have to become willing servants. And then finally, we have to be servants that actually not say we're going to go, but we actually go. Even if it's fatigue, even if it's all the other things we've got, God says, go anyway. You're all I've got to work with, right? <laughs> the Lord had given Nehemiah the care and compassion. Remember way back in chapter 1, Nehemiah was the first one. Before the people in Jerusalem even knew God was on the move, 900-some miles away in Susa in Persia, Nehemiah had been given the care and compassion. Then he comes to Jerusalem, and he has the wisdom to assess the situation. And then the strategy, the God-given strategy, to address it. But it's up to the people to take it from here, to apply and employ the strategy and the will of God for the city to be renewed. Let, remind you, let me remind you this morning that God has a strategy and a will for this city to be renewed. Did you know that? This city and every other city. And it's found in the Great Commission of Jesus and the priorities of the apostles found in the early church in chapter 2 of Acts and in the epistles. But this morning, we see that each necessary step was now being taken. Each step was being taken. The agreement and the desire to fulfill the will of God begins to take place from a willingness to then the words of yes and amen. Again, we talk about amen being agreeing with God to the work starting. What starts out in the invisible realm. What I mean by that, what start out in the invisible realm of Nehemiah's heart. Nobody could see his heart way back in Susa there. But what started out in the invisible realm of the heart then becomes tangible. It becomes visible. It becomes the fruit of our labor in the Lord. Now, now the people really are working with bolts and doors. What started out in the heart is becoming a visible work. What begins as a macro message of rise and build becomes a collection of micro works where God orchestrates a division of labor into smaller sections within the body of Christ. Do you know when jobs are given, when you divide a responsibility, everyone could be working on the same job but really have something completely different. Like you're having a house be, being, be, being built, um, the electrician is doing something completely different than the plumbing experts, right? But it's the same job to build the house, but it's a division of labor and God does this. Draw your attention to this map of ancient Jerusalem. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. And I want you to see visually how the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, through Nehemiah's leadership, and then via the people's willingness, God distributes the workload. Again, this is God's genius. He distributes the workload 
for maximum effectiveness. Those of you that are process-oriented people, you'll love this. You'll look at this and say, well, this is what I'm talking about right here. Why can't I get other people to run things like this, right? <laughs> Remember from our Ministry Sunday text from Philemon that you, what Paul wrote, he said that you may become effective in the sharing of the faith. Effective. Now, they were already effective, but they would become more effective, ever becoming effective. God always has a detailed plan for uniting people to complete his will. Now the, now the work moves from preparation to production. This is actually, the walls will have to be rebuilt, but they're in little small sections. And it begins, I'll show you, it begins in the northeast corner at the sheep gate. See where the arrow is there? That's where the work begins. Uh, right up here, there's, there's a flat plain. If you get to go to Israel with us, you'll see there's a flat plain there. It was the most vulnerable part of the city. And that's the first place that the work begins, the first section to be completed. That section, from a strategic standpoint, given that it left the city most vulnerable, is where they started. But on either side, if you look to the east, and by the way, if you're looking to the east, the Mount of Olives is right over here. You look to the east or to the west, the topography of the land gave you rugged hills and valleys, so it was less vulnerable. But they started in the most vulnerable place. Interesting that it starts at the sheep gate with the high priest leading the effort. Look back at verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. Starts at the sheep gate. Why is this interesting? Well, we know Jesus is both the Lamb of God, and he's also what? The high priest. And he counts us as the sheep of his flock. And we're the most vulnerable too, by the way, aren't we? God's plan of restoration has always been, first and foremost, the lost sheep would enter through the narrow gate. Always, that's his first. There's a lot of things that God does, but that's his greatest priority. Next week, we'll look more at the spiritual significance of the different gates. Some of you might be saying, um, is that fish gate for the seafood lover and me? Or right there, you know, uh, these different other things, the valley gate. We'll talk about the fountain gate. Notice where it is, north of the dung gate. All of these things, there's spiritual uh, lessons that we'll take a look at, spiritual application. Every one of these gates have a spiritual significance. There's gates in your life that God wants to guard, wants to shore up, that God wants to rebuild. And so we'll take a look at what the spiritual aspects, but we're not going to have time for that today. But what we are focused on is what unites the people. What is it that unites the people to rise and work as one? What is the glue that ensures their cohesiveness and will allow them to be exponentially productive, successful in the mission? Do you want to be successful in the missions God's given you, productive in them? That's our focus today. But let me point out from the map how the building project is arranged here in Nehemiah chapter 3. So if you were to go read all 32 verses of chapter 3, which we're not going to read all 32 verses, not even next week. I'm going to read pieces and parts of them because some of it is more of a naming of, of the different people in the walls. But if you were to read it 
this is how it moves around. Counterclockwise. It starts at the sheep gate, and every little section is described in chapter 3. Every name, every leader, every group, it goes counterclockwise till it all the way comes around. Look at verse 32 of chapter 3. Till it comes back to the sheep gate. And between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate. Verse 32. It starts there and it moves counterclockwise in describing who did what, which section. Now you'll notice that some sections are bigger than others. In the Christian life, some of you will be given smaller boxes to manage than others. Billy Graham just went home to be with the Lord. He spoke to 215 million people face to face. Well, not, but I mean from a distance in stadiums and stuff. He, he couldn't see the person at, you know, way at the top. But in person, millions more by TV and radio and all these other things. Uh, he was given a bigger box to manage, a bigger piece of the wall. Doesn't make other people less important. I put out something on my Facebook site where you might have saw where Edward Kimball led. D.L. Moody to Christ, who then preached, and along comes Billy Sunday. You know, and, and on it goes, all the way till it gets to Billy Graham, gets saved at a Mordecai Ham, but, uh, or uh, Crusader Outreach. But going back to Edward Kimball, who was just a guy that went to church and taught Sunday school, his place on the wall became ultimately, in eternity, he reached millions. God looks at each piece as important. Let me also point out to you the fact that as it is described in a counterclockwise motion, uh, I want to remind you, God will often work counterclockwise to our thinking. Amen? He never consults us, by the way, on how the project should be laid out. Let's look briefly in our remaining time at what bonds this uh, diverse mix of servants together, because it really is a diverse mix uh, that's up there. If you're taking notes, the first thing we'll look at is what I've titled Unified Hearts. Look back at verse 1. Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren and priest and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. Eliashib, he rises up with his brethren, the priest. Yes, these men were part of the same vocation, the same work group, the same calling and responsibilities. But they were first and foremost what? The high priest rose up with his brethren. Before it says that they were priests, it says they were brethren. Their unity was first in their relationship as family. <clears throat> we have to cultivate unity, brother and sister. I just called you the same brethren there. Brethren, we have to cultivate unity. Do you know unity does not happen on its own? Now, the Holy Spirit is there to ignite it and activate it, but we can either quench the Spirit or yield to the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Unity takes effort. If you don't think so, just look in your own family. Parents, have you ever mediated? Right? Unity takes effort effort. I love Hebrews 13.1. It says, let brotherly love continue. Let it continue? Why? Because if you don't, it won't continue. You have to let it. You have to work at it. You have to desire it. I love these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life and martyred him for Christ. He said, 
Christians who can no longer listen to one another will soon no longer be listening to God. Christians who can no longer listen to one another will soon no longer be listening to God. You have to care about the person beside you and be willing to listen and call them brethren. This entire group, though, their first relationship was family. That was the first relationship. Before their vocation was that they were brethren. This entire group is a diverse family of oneness. The whole group. You saw the, all those different names on the wall. Different. Different skin tones, different background. Men, women, young, old, uh, from the country, from the city. Small villages. If you get to go to Israel, you'll see that the Jewish people is the most diverse mix. It's really cool. I mean, you see, when you go there, you've got... Uh, Jews that are Russian. You've got Jews that are Ethiopian. You've got people that are just like, you know, just like us in your own family. You've got some people who are good at math. Some people aren't good at math. Some people are good at English. Some, all this different. But then you have all the other stratas that were there. Men were helping on the wall. Next week when we look at Shalom and his daughters, his, his daughters were chiseling or whatever they were doing. You know, They were there on the wall. Young, old, some again, some were country boys. Some were city folk, small villages, educated, uneducated, different tribes, different backgrounds, but unified on this job as one family. Isn't that great? Nehemiah comes there, and God brings all this together. This was not happening before he got there. It, they didn't have this kind of unity. But they were all the descendants of Jacob. Everyone on that group is Jewish directly from the tribes that descended Jacob and the family of God chosen as a nation. But in spite of all their past failures, and there was plenty of past failures, God still had a plan, and it required them to do what? To come together. They could not do it separate or on their own. They had to come together. The apostle Peter, speaking to the church and the family of Christ, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of our, or I'm sorry, out of our failures, out of our failures and out of our former darkness, Christ is ready to use us to build and restore other people. Us. All the failure, he says, yeah, I'm going to use you. Now, as I mentioned in the overview of the city uh, walls and the gates, the sheep gate and the high priest presents some, some symbolic allusions to Christ, the Lamb of God and our high priest. The work, it not only starts here at the sheep gate, which we looked at, but the sheep gate was adjacent to the temple. You might have saw the temple was right there, up there on that northeast uh, side. And the temple and the sheep gate, through that sheep gate, is where the blood sacrifices are brought in. That's also important, too. The blood sacrifices come in there. And Nehemiah's description of the sections begins there with this sheep gate, ends there with the sheep gate in verse 32. And why is that important? It begins and ends at the sheep gate. Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega. Everything begins and ends with him. 
And everything begins and ends with his sacrifice because the sacrifice has come through there. The blood sacrifice has come through there. The work of the hands, the priest was using his hands. Guess what Jesus did with his hands? He stretched them out. They became dirty. They became uh, full of blood, but not because of splinters, but because of nails. His sacrifice was for the sheep as opposed to the sheep, a sacrifice for everyone else. But as we look at this man, Eliashib, and those that rise with him, the priests that rise with him, those who are around him, we see not only some of the characteristics of Christ's likeness, but some of the key contributing factors to unifying and inspiring the hearts of the people. God wants to unify. He's already inspired because we have the inspired Word of God. But He wants to unify. And part of that, it takes with these leaders, and Elisha being this man here, you have to have sincerity. You have to have authenticity. You have to have humility among leaders to have a genuine impact on unity. Do you agree with that? To have a genuine impact to really unite people, there has to be sincerity, there has to be authenticity, there has to be humility. Jesus had all of those, didn't he? He united the 12, and then it was like dynamite to the world. If the spiritual leaders don't have the right heart and the right response to the will of God, not their own will, they will never inspire and encourage others to take new steps of faith and surrender. Nehemiah, he didn't have it. The other leaders wouldn't have it. They didn't have it. The people wouldn't have it. It's the way God has set it up. But Elisha, he has the right response. He doesn't say, hey, hold on, Nehemiah. Do you know who I am? I'm the high priest. Do you have any idea? The high priest is the top, spiritually speaking, top position, top dog. Nehemiah, who are you? I know you're the king's cupbearer, you got your secret service clearance and all that other stuff from Persia, but you're not the high priest. I am. I'm the spiritual leader. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I don't have to respond what God's given to you because God's given me my own stuff. No, no. Eliashib recognizes that the burden God's given to Nehemiah comes directly from God. Sometimes um, it's called the law of the outside voice. Uh, you know, God will bring, and, and God's done this, great pastors in England during the time when D.L. Moody was brought there by the Spirit, many of them at first kind of resisted because they're like, hey, we, we're really faithful to the Word. But then they would see that this uneducated man, originally from the Northeast, then from Chicago, was preaching with no, didn't even finish high school, but he preached with such authority that they had to realize we not only must have him teach we need every church to hear him. And people would fall into repentance and people would weep and say, I need to recommit my life to Christ and all this stuff. And then the shepherds were able to teach people that were revived. Amen. So sometimes God brings a Nehemiah and Eliashib seems to recognize this. It's also very significant for the high priest to do manual labor. You realize this is not really found often in Scripture, right? The high priest, they, they stayed very clean they, would, they were men that were usually older and would delegate that responsibility, but they had specific spiritual roles, not this type of manual labor. So this was unusual, but it spoke volumes to the people, don't you think? That he would put his hands to the work, humble, willing to work. This entire work is a holy work. 
In fact, the priesthood, they consecrated this portion. It says they consecrated the door. They consecrated all the, the wall right there, signifying that the labor was a sacred sacrifice. The labor was a sacrifice. Whatever you're doing, brother and sisters, if you're doing it for Jesus, it's a sacred sacrifice. Uh, the word consecration means set apart or dedicated. Is your life set apart and dedicated to Jesus, or, or is it not? And what a reminder to us all that everything that is part of the ministry of the body of Christ is holy, is sanctified work. Serve in the nursery, sanctified work, if it's set apart to the Lord. Building a spreadsheet, if it's for the Lord. Cutting the grass, if it's for the Lord. Making copies for the children's ministry, if it's for the Lord. All for the glory of God. Gospel presentation, sharing our faith, making disciples. That's what it's all for. In essence, the consecration of the sheep gate, even though the consecration took place on that corner, that's where they did the consecration. In essence, the consecration of that corner consecrated the whole wall, all the way around, every part. The unified hearts of the priest reflect the unified hearts of the people. started with the priesthood, but all the people were now committed to this work. One disappointing note, one of the things that you know about the Bible why you know it's true, it's unlike Hollywood, it reveals the bad stuff too. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't say, sweep it under the carpet, this never happened, right? But one of the ways you know the Bible is true is the Bible lets you in on the humanity and the fallen condition of even great men like David, right? Doesn't hide all that, just says, man, we need grace, 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 right? One of the disappointing notes about Eliashib, later when you get to chapter 13, he compromises, and God will send Nehemiah back to basically get in Elisha's face and redirect the people's hearts back to God. Understand this. Listen closely, all of us. I don't care how long you've been saved. You can start with a fully surrendered heart and drift away and compromise and get to the place like Israel. You know, did you know... When the, when the Israelites received manna, it was heavenly food. It came down from heaven. Do you know after a while they got tired of it? And they said, whoa, we'd love to have something not from heaven. <laughs> whoa, we'd love to have something healthy like earthly food. They got tired of it. They complained about it. But then in the New Testament, Jesus said, he is manna. He said, he's the bread come down to heaven. Do you know a lot of Christians are tired of Jesus? They are so tired of Jesus. They won't say it, but they don't live for him at all anymore. They used to share their faith. They don't share their faith anymore. They used to serve. They don't want to serve anymore. They're tired of Jesus. They don't care anymore. They are complaining without complaining. At least, and God sees it, and he's not fooled. And later, Eliashib's going to drift like that. But people can go from being a leader for God to being a roadblock to God, which, by the way, God will plow through eventually, right? Yeah. He gives time to, for us to turn around. And you may be here today, and you were once sensitive and responsive to the call of God. You used to be sensitive to the Spirit. Your life used to be consecrated. Your hands were working for the Lord. You were in fellowship with people, and you worked at being in fellowship with people, and now kind of just, I'm not sure if this applies to anybody, but it might. I'm sure in a room this side, somebody said, yeah, I just don't care anymore. I don't want to be in fellowship. I just kind of want to do my own thing. 
But then, other times, people have little bits of compromise, a little step backwards, another step backwards, another step backwards. The heart of Elijah and the priesthood here, God desires that they stay right here, that they stay consecrated. Amen? God wants you to stay. It takes work to stay consecrated. It takes prayer, being on our knees, staying in the Word of God. It takes nothing to drift away. You know know how to drift away? Don't do anything. You'll just drift. Nothing will get built. No walls will be strengthened. It's still true. Beyond these days, beyond these walls. Look, Look at the next thing, the united effort. United effort. Starting in verse 5, then next to them, the Tekoites uh, made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Sad commentary, huh? The only negative statement in this chapter, the only group that says the Tekoites did, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of, um, well, I'm not going to read all these names. They laid the beams and gates, goes on. I got through enough of them. I'm like, I'm good for today. Uh, they repaired the residence of the governor, verse 7. This is not my native tongue here, folks. But we know, we know that this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. Nehemiah said everybody, everybody needs to help. All hands on deck. Even the high priest has his tool belt on. But where there are unified hearts, there will be a far more unified and cohesive work. When the motives are pure, there's coordination rather than commotion. There's cooperation. There's collaboration. And no doubt, there's knowledge sharing. In verse 5, we saw it. They put, uh, they made, the Tekoites made repairs. Verse 7, they repaired the residence uh, you see these different different people, the Gibeonite, the Tekoites. Uh, down in verse 8, Uzael, uh, he's a goldsmith. Hananiah, a perfumer. Yeah, they had Calvin Klein perfume way back then, all that good stuff. You know, they, they had that stuff then. That's all, all, that stuff a lot of times was used in the temple, uh, the perfumes and things like that. But, again, you had these different job roles, different skill sets. There was, uh, you get down to verse 31, 32, the merchants did part of the wall. So you had the business people, all these different, uh, some were, some were handymen, some weren't. Um, but nobody said, hey, I'm a, I'm a merchant. I, I, I don't know anything about construction. I'm a perfumer. That's, that's, that's not my specialty. Construction isn't my thing. God says, share your faith. Uh, I don't have to get to evangelism. You know, God says back to you, share your faith. Uh, I'd love to help in children's ministry, but I don't have that gift. Do you have kids? Yes. Then you have the gift. There you go. (laughs) God blesses the effort, doesn't he? He blesses the effort. You ever watch the activity at a beehive or an ant pile? Like, they're going all over the place, right? The activity, the pace, the movement, it looks completely random to us from a distance, doesn't it? It looks completely random, overlapping, uncoordinated, but in fact, it's highly sophisticated, isn't it? It's not random at all. Every ant, every bee is doing something specifically. 
They crawl all over each other, get it all done, right? They get, did you know that ants and bees give 100% effort? They don't know what it's like to give 92% effort. <laughs> God has designed things like hummingbirds. They never take time off. They are 100% dedicated. I wish we could be more like animals sometimes, don't you? 100% dedicated. A kid can come and kick every ant pile in the backyard over, and will this summer, right? And in no time, the ants rebuild it, don't they? You come back the next day, boom, all 30 are back. How do they do it? They're determined. They're not distracted, are they? They're not deterred. And they're unified, and they have no fear or avoidance of work. Worker bees, worker ants, they, that's, they live to work. Now, I'm not talking about here, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. But they were created for that, weren't they? They were created for that work, and they do it 100% of the time. We've been created for the work of the Lord. Did you know we've been created to do the work of the Lord? Ephesians 2.10, we were there not long ago. Created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are you walking in them? Sadly, as we see, not everyone's willing to do the work. Verse 5, the nobles did not put their shoulders to the work, but just these nobles of the Tekoites. The other nobles all did. Just this one group said, not for us. We are extra special. <laughs> or they were in alignment with Sambalot, Tobiah. That's a possibility. We don't know for sure. They could have been in alignment with those guys. They had pride laziness, superiority complex. We're above this. This is for you underlings. Don't you love when CEOs, American companies that got like a $15 million bonus, give a $5,000 check to the United Way and everybody cheers like, uh, what an amazing thing, right? <laughs> everybody else just barely got Christmas paid for and all the other kind of stuff. And But we had... We have the same superiority complex today where people live above this. They live in an ivory tower. I don't have to do this stuff. The Tekoites were the common people. Their common people were doing the work. The nobles said, not for us. We're not giving up our, if they did have that alliance, we're not giving up our niche. Let me ask you, though. The Tekoite people were, were giving it. We know the ants and the bees are giving their effort. What percentage would you put your work of the Lord on? If, you were, if, if God said, hey, I just want you to give yourself a grade, what's your work effort? It's not 100% because no one here is hitting 100%. But what is it? Is it 80%? Is it 22%? Is it negative 1%? Is it 50 I don't know. This isn't a delay, a guilt trip, or have you compare yourself with other people. Just an honest internal assessment. What would my work effort for the Lord look like? Someday we'll give an account for it. What is your prayers and labor of love? We're called to be laborers in his vineyard. So often people are workaholics at everything except for Jesus. Workaholics for everything but Jesus. They give their left arm for their career. The boss says jump, they say how high. Go here, go here. Jesus says, I'd just like you to do... No, I can't. D.L. Moody, the late, as I mentioned earlier, he said in the 1800s, he said, a great many people have a false idea that the church is a place to rest in to get a nicely cushioned pew. That, that's the kind of stuff he preached in England. 
and in America and everywhere else that he preached. He wasn't a pastor, he was an evangelist, but oh, he, oh, he did do some pastoral work as well. But in John 9, 4, Jesus speaking, said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says you have a limited time. That's what he's saying. That Jesus had a limited time, but so do we. There's no guarantee when we don't get another opportunity to work on the wall. It's a privilege to do it, though. Do you see it as a privilege? Do you see working for God as a privilege or a, uh, yeah, yeah. Or a privilege? I, I don't love doing funerals, as I mentioned yesterday, but it's a privilege to minister to people and share the gospel, especially when they're hurting. That's a privilege. It's not about us. It's about him. Amen? Elizabeth Elliot, in sharing the importance of teaching kids and adults to work heartily the Lord, she said, instead of feeling that they must be allowed to do what they like, they would learn to like what they do. Learn to like what God has given us instead of always looking to something else. We'll never love the work until we love the giver of the work. His grace is a great place to start. Isn't it? Just remember his grace. Remember his grace. When you remember his grace, you say, yes, Lord. Yes, this is a privilege. Jericho, it says the men of Jericho worked uh, here. Jericho had been a city cursed by the Lord back in Joshua 6.26. Did you know that? Jericho had been cursed. The city had been destroyed. You remember the walls fell down, Jericho? You might say, our family seems cursed. Maybe you think about your extended family and your cousins and aunts and uncles. You say, wow, you should see the damage in our family. I, you'd be surprised. Most of us would have similar stories. We all think we like, have the most unique story ever. But we don't. We have a common story of destruction and messed up relationships and lots of baggage. And you might think, uh, well, so-and-so could never come to Christ in our family. You might say, we've had three generations of alcoholism. Physical abuse, divorce, relationships shattered, all, this, all these things. You might say, uh, we could never get so-and-so to come to church for one Sunday, much less get saved. And never, ever could we get the men in our family to come to church, not the men. <laughs> They're the last to come. Well, not only can God turn it all around in your family, and he's done it many times. You could someday see even some men in your family not only saved, not only loving to go to church. Because I used to not ever like to go to church. Now I love to go to church. Now I'm stuck here a lot going to church, right? You know. And I mean that in a good way. God's planted me. But you could see men and women in your family someday serving side by side with Christian leaders who before wouldn't listen to them one minute. We've got people here that used to, if they had to come and hear me for one second, I could see it on their face, they couldn't wait to get out of here. They hated me more than I, you know, I could tell. The men of Jericho, the city of the curse, it was referred to at some times, were working right beside the priesthood on the wall, right smack beside the priesthood. The men of Jericho, right at the sheep gate. You see, all these sections of the wall are being tended by 
fallen and imperfect people that have said yes to a second chance. They've said yes to a second chance. They've said instead of this being a chore, they're like, thank you, God, for giving us a second chance. Last thing we look at this morning, this unified vision as we bring it to a close. The heart of God, the vision the Lord had put on Nehemiah, it remained front and center in the mind of the heart of the people. They built, they repaired, and they also, look at verse 8, they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. The word built is used six times in Nehemiah chapter 3. The word built six times. It means rebuilt. So when you see the word built, it means rebuilt, like a rebuilt engine, right? All the parts were there. You just got to take it apart and re-put it back together. This is to take the stones, the large ones that had already fallen, and get them off the ground back into their proper place. The cornerstone of the church is who? Jesus. He, unlike us, never moves. He never moves. We are rolling stones, aren't we? We move. He doesn't move. The individual stones in the church are you and me. We sometimes get moved. You, uh, some of us have fallen. Some of us, moss has grown on us. And we need to be put back in place, cleaned up. The word repair is used 34 times here in chapter 3. Repair is used 34 times. Built is used 6 times. And it means to make strong or to make firm. The word repair, make strong, make it firm. So you have rebuilt and make something strong and firm. The stones are not only to be put back in place, but they're to be fitted tightly, interlocked. It's, by the way, the stones, and you, you know how bricks are laid, they're not just straight up. You put them at overlapping because interlocking them makes them far stronger. Interlocking us makes us far stronger. Fitted and knitted makes us a lot stronger together than just side by side. The last word is fortify. What does this mean? Well, they weren't using new materials, same materials that were used over 100 years earlier. This is not meant to be a quick fix either. God isn't into quick fixes. He's in for the long haul for us. This work is built to last. Some process, uh, or the same process on the gates, same exact materials, same process, same Jerusalem stone that was used decades earlier. And we, brothers and sisters, we're not to use new tactics to fortify or to build up or to repair lives, but the same unchanging Word of God. Amen? We're not to use new materials. Same materials. Pick them back up, put them back in place. They were always there to be strong. We just kind of let it go. One or two people as repairers, are, that's a good thing. It's always good to have at least one person stand up for Jesus, right? Four to five is even better. Fifteen to twenty, now we're really good. But the more people that say, yes, I'm going to be a repairer. I'm going to put these things back in place. We need the vision of God to see lives rebuilt and to see people, not what they are right now, but where they can be repaired, set free. We need to see ourselves set free from things. Amen? Amen. Not just out there. They say, you know, Pastor, you should see me. Well, we all need areas rebuilt in our own life first. It's kind of hard. You know, I've talked about it all the time. You get on an airplane, they don't say, put the mask on the kid. They say, put it on you first. 
then you're able to help somebody else. We have to be rebuilt. We're going to be able to be rebuilding others. I love the unity and the teamwork and the single vision of special forces teams. Anyone else like that stuff? You're like, well, I mean, you see the mission, you're like, wow. These elite teams, especially when they're going to rescue someone who's been taken hostage or captive. They're going to liberate. Don't you love when people are liberated? They'll risk their lives to set someone free. Will we? Will we risk our lives to set someone free? As we'll see in the coming weeks, this was not a risk-free job. To build on this wall was not risk-free. Serving Christ isn't risk-free. Amen? And the rewards are going to be more than we can imagine, but it's not risk-free in this lifetime. Serving in ministry is not risk-free. Life isn't risk-free. Amen? We'll get hurt along the way. Sometimes it'll be thankless. But God will bless the work. He'll heal our wounds. Who's going to heal my wounds? God will. Hey, he might use other people at times, thankfully for that. But he'll give us strength, and we'll see the unified vision collectively of repaired and restored lives. When you walk into your house, when you come to church, when you go to work, when you go out and about, is the Spirit reminding you and compelling you to build people up in encouragement and in hope, to bring the repairing message of Jesus and the gospel, to fortify the faith of others. By the way, when you fortify other people's faith, guess what happens to your own? It gets stronger. One of the best ways for your faith to grow is start pouring it into other people. Uh We'll say, but I'm not the greatest at this. Take the little bit you have, Uh that little piece on the wall. Isaiah 58, 12, we'll bring it to a close here. I love this passage. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repair of the breach. Now, that's Jesus. That's messianic. But we get to be part of his body. Amen? The restorer of the streets to dwell in. The repairer is Jesus, but we're to be one in and of his body. May the Lord make us of one heart, unified effort, and unified vision by his spirit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the work of your spirit that you want to unify us in the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, we may be all here are like the men of Jericho. We've come from a curse into a blessing. And you want to use us in spite of our flaws and our failures and fit us together, all of our diverse backgrounds, and somehow, Lord, fit it all together and by God math, make it work. And we're thankful, Jesus, that you gave that we could give our lives back to you in surrender. And Lord, you said uh, it's not burdensome to keep your commandments. It's a joy when we come into that deep relationship to know that your grace is greater than our past, our failures. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to every heart that is here as we are soon going to be entering into just remembering your death and resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to each heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.